0: Channel open. Welcome back to Weekly Trek, a proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions podcast network and presented in partnership with TrekCore.com. I am your host, Alex Perry. What's today's date? The date. Today's show was recorded on August 6, 2022 and is current through Star Trek Strange New Worlds Season 1, so beware of spoilers. All right, let's get into the show. Good day, Voyager, and welcome to A Briefing with Neelix catchy title, isn't it? Weekly Trek is a regular news show covering the biggest stories from the Star Trek franchise. We are in a new golden age of Star Trek. There are five television shows in production, possibly more on the way, and enough merchandise to fill the Bajoran wormhole. So stick with me, and I'll help you sort the real facts from loss of the Dominion propaganda that you'll find online. But I can't do this alone, and my guest this week is the host of the upcoming Star Trek podcast, On This Stardate, with Brian Kane, It's brian Kane, brian welcome to weekly track thank you for having me so much alex i'm a big fan of the show oh, thank you so much brian i really appreciate that well brian normally at this point i'd ask you something that's got you feeling good about star trek but this is a bit of a sad week for star trek and its fans so we're going to skip that this week and head straight into the week's top stories there's a war going on and i'm a reporter Nichelle Nichols, known throughout the world for her groundbreaking portrayal of Lieutenant Neota Uhura in Star Trek and the subsequent six movies, died this past week at the age of 89. The Star Trek star's death was announced through her official website by Nichols's son, Kyle Johnson, who wrote, quote, I regret to inform you that a great light in the firmament no longer shines for us, as it has for so many years. Last night, my mother, Nichelle Nichols, succumbed to natural causes and passed away. Her light, however, like the ancient galaxies now being seen for the first time, will remain for us and future generations to enjoy, learn from, and draw inspiration. "'Hers was a life well-lived, and as such a model for us all. I and the rest of our family would appreciate your patience and forbearance as we grieve her loss until we can recover sufficiently to speak further. Her services will be for family members and closest of her friends, and we request that her and our privacy be respected.'" Nichols, who became an overnight icon during the run of the original series, has never been far from the Star Trek franchise and its underlying principles. After Star Trek, she worked with NASA in the 1970s and 80s to expand the ranks and diversities of America's space program, and has been a constant presence on the Star Trek convention circuit since its creation. Tributes for the actress have been pouring in from all corners of Hollywood, including both Star Trek New and Old. The current actress portraying Neota Uhura, Celia Rose Gooding, wrote in a tweet that, quote, She made room for so many of us, she was the reminder that not only can we reach the stars, but our influence is essential to their survival. Forget shaking the table, she built it. Even the White House issued a statement mourning the passing of Michelle. In a statement, President Biden said in part, During the height of the civil rights movement, she shattered stereotypes to become the first black woman to act in a major role on a primetime television show with her groundbreaking portrayal of Lieutenant Uhura in the original Star Trek. With a defining dignity and authority, she helped tell a central story that reimagines scientific pursuits and discoveries. And she continued this legacy by going on to work with NASA to empower generations of Americans from every background to reach for the stars and beyond. Our nation is forever indebted to inspiring artists like Michelle Nichols, who show us a future where unity, dignity, and respect are cornerstones of every society. Brian, what did the life and legacy of Michelle Nichols mean to you?
1: It's absolutely... it it hits home in so many ways. I just want to start off by saying that, you know, I know that she had dementia in her later years. uh, And that's something that my grandmother has now, you know, and it just hits close to home, you know, and I just lost my grandfather from Alzheimer's earlier. this year. So, you know, thank you. Um, All of this hits close to home. And, you know, it was actually with my grandfather was the first time I watched the original series. You know, I, I grew up as a next generation baby and and that was all I knew. And so I was begging him to watch Star Trek one night and he didn't know which Star Trek from which Star Trek and I only two at the time. Yeah. So, you know, he put on the sign and I could tell I was very little and I could tell just by hearing the fanfare. And I thought, okay, this is something, but it's not what I'm accustomed to. But then I was just transfixed and it was The Trouble with Tribbles And uh, you know, from the moment that I first saw the first original Enterprise, and then Nichelle Nichols with the Tribble, it meant the same to me that it meant seeing LeVar Burton on Star Trek every week. It said to me, as a young black man, a young black boy, that we did make it to the twenty fourth century, in spite of everything going on now, and everything going on now is ultimately Star Trek's history. And so, Nichelle Nichols was that for me and for my previous generation uh, my uh, in a family of star trek fans it told them at a really really critical time and it reminded it reminds me every day that we do make it that far and we can make it that far and she did it with such eloquence and she was so regal and that's not something that i believe we'll see ever again and just they didn't give her a lot to do unfortunately but the little bit that she did and the presence that she had was i mean it definitely left an impact it's just a weight every time you see it and i'm i'm obviously of the millennial generation but i think that being raised by my grandparents it was a blessing in a multitude of regards because i was able i'm able to watch things that came out say in 1966 as star trek did and see them for what they were at that time and not look at them through this lens of what perhaps they should be today. And I think that it's important. And when you do that, you really, when you're able to watch it that way, especially the original Star Trek or anything out of the 1960s, you're able to appreciate the weight of Nichelle Nichols just being present on that bridge and serving the role that she did. And she was an officer.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, talk about like movie star presence and personality, right? Like, you know, I had the opportunity to meet Nichelle uh, at a couple of conventions and and she was fabulous. Just so wonderful, you know, both times that I met her. The first time I met her was in 2011, which was before she had started to decline. And then I I met her a couple of years uh, ago, I think at the 2019 Star Trek Las Vegas convention. And both times it was just so obvious How happy she was to be there How happy she was to be meeting people That's a lot more than you can say for some of the other major luminaries from the original series, cough, cough, William Shatner, cough, <laughs> cough. But you know, always, always so wonderful to interact with. I, you know, I had the opportunity to see her appear on stage a, a couple of times over the years at some of those earlier conventions I went to before she sort of stepped away from doing the on-stage appearances. And you know, always so graceful and inspiring, and and wonderful to listen to in many ways. I was a, a huge fan of hers, and, and as you say right like all of the kind of you know as you said as as the president said you know the sort of groundbreaking nature of her portrayal as uhura within star trek but like Groundbreakingness groundbreaking this aside, she just did a really great job with all the material she was given, right? Like, you're 100% right. She didn't get as much as maybe we hoped she would have. And, you know, certainly in the movies, I would have loved a little bit more Uhura in places. But every time Nichelle had something to do, she did it with such power and such grace. And it was just so well acted and with such presence every time that it always just kind of stood out in this really significant way where you know she sort of elevated all of the material and helped to elevate the performances of everybody around her in each of those episodes she's in, right? Like I think about episodes like the one you mentioned, right? The Trouble with Tribbles or The Changeling, where you know, Nomad kind of wipes out her memory and she has to sort of relearn, she first relearn Swahili and then Learns English and, you know, has to sort of relearn everything about being sort of an adult human being again. And, you know, even though the episode probably didn't dwell on that as much as it should, because that's a really interesting idea... In each of those scenes, she did just such a terrific job.
1: And I mean, and just like you just mentioned the changeling, like, you know, I think in that particular moment where she was relearning, you know, where she was being retaught, Christine Chappell and Bones were giving her the medical tapes and, you know, saying what level she was at, you know, and here we, here we are, we're kind of sad about this, but then she walked this fine line between having us be sad and having us think, oh, cute because it was kind of a comedic moment with the Bluey, you know, and, Uh uh, you know, I mean, and it's so cartoony now, you know, that one little moment, but, you know, I mean, it was just kind of a a wink, a comedic wink, and having that type of timing with sci-fi material, particularly with Star Trek, sure, those of us who love it, uh, you know, those of us who are fans, we're always going to let out a little chuckle because we love these people. They're part of our extended families, but it's not everybody's able to do it, and not everyone is good at doing it without it not seeming just uh, cringeworthy, for lack of a better word. The Lorelai factor in the animated yeah, series, it's, that's, that's where she gets her moment. And you could hear in her voice how much she was sinking her teeth into this opportunity. She took command of the Enterprise. And I'm just thinking there should have been so many moments like that in the original series, and even in at least a moment in the film, You know, especially since she didn't go down to the planet with the guys on uh, Star Trek 3 you know go down to the Genesis planet you know what was she doing she was keeping control of Mr. Adventure we know that but <laughs> but beyond that what was she out doing?
0: of the palm of my hand? exactly exactly
1: you know or or the manner in which she regarded abraham lincoln you can't forget that moment where she said you know i come from a time where words are no longer threatening to us and i know i'm paraphrasing but that was just uh and i believe that was the savage curtain if i'm not mistaken yeah yeah you know so that was just a great powerful moment for audiences of any type and you know the audience is watching star trek is also is obviously very open-minded particularly in 1967 1968 when we saw the the savage curtain for the first time that was just very very powerful particularly coming from current time where a particular word of similar tone was used as as an oppressive instrument and you know that's a moment that that's still of hers that i hold very very dear just like uh you know she i I don't know about you you alex but she always had me eating out of the palm of her hand i mean all she had to do was say a word and i was kind of like you know like everyone on the bridge we turned and looked at uhura
0: yep absolutely yeah i mean she was so good at you know all of that and has such an impact on the franchise and and on that cultural moment in time right i mean there's that story about how She was considering leaving the show after the first season, but a conversation with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. kind of convinced her that she should kind of stick around and stay on the show, even with the limited material, because of all of the sort of, because of the cultural impact that just her role and her place on the bridge of the Enterprise had. And I've always thought it was a shame that, you know, of all of the original series characters, she was the only one outside of archival footage in one of the recent prodigies to not have had the opportunity to reprise the role in a later kind of production, like, you know, George Takei did in Star Trek Voyager, or DeForest Kelly did in the in the pilot for Star Trek The Next Generation, but the body of work is significant.
1: Exactly, exactly. And you know, and, and, and you know, I just want to hang on that point of how many opportunities we could have had to create something really, really nice for her. I mean, I hear that they I don't know if you if you remember, but uh, I heard early buzz about generations how there was supposed to be this whole earlier scene where we're spending more time with these characters from the original series and we see that Ahura is a professor at starfleet academy or you know and i think even in star trek 6 you know she was hosting a radio show i thought i read somewhere that you know she was on earth hosting a radio show for I believe Starfleet Command. There were just so many opportunities that we had to further showcase this actress and her commitment to not only the franchise but the character and she was really like you said uh, her presence in the in the franchise was everlasting even though we haven't hadn't seen her, you know, as 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 recently and as often as we saw the other uh, original series stars. She was really one of the greatest ambassadors for Star Trek, yeah, particularly from that cast, because you know, I mean, you have William Shatner, who I revere and respect as James T. Kirk and T.J. Hooker and Denny Crane, you know, and and all of these epic figures, and you know, and and the Nick of Time in the Twilight Zone, you know, and Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet, you know, we have all of these wonderful examples of him, but you know, he hasn't been the best ambassador for the show, yeah, sure. and I think his. His recent comments prove that, you know, and I'm kind of thinking, how would he know if Roddenberry would be rolling over in his grave, you know, yeah, when right. uh, by your own admission, you haven't watched any of the news? Here. Yeah, I you
0: haven't of, even I watched your own.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of call bullshit on that, Alex. I th- yeah, think he's, sure. uh, I think he is keenly aware, even at this point in his career, that certain statements are going to get you publicity and there's no such thing as bad publicity. And I think that he, he has this need to stay relevant and in front of the camera, and certainly statements like that are gonna get you that that time. I mean, look, I, he lit up the internet saying that. <laughs> yeah, I just, right. and, you know, but I, I digress. She was always a great ambassador. I'll never forget the quote. She said, just think, being associated with Star Trek, that character you portrayed in Star Trek is someone that is a character that's gonna stick with you forever, and that's a privilege. And I do think that uh, I do wish that the other uh, original series cast members revered it in that same manner, because it did give them what they had, ultimately, whether Shatner wants to regard it that way or not.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I think in terms of that sort of way that she kind of really leaned into and dedicated using a portion of that stardom towards that piece of public service, the documentary that was made about her woman in motion goes into much more detail Uh, about, you know, sort of her contributions to NASA in the 70s and 80s and trying to grow the ranks of you know U.S. astronauts and particularly the diversity of U.S. astronauts and Trekwar noticed that the Air and Space Museum had posted a commercial that had been created in 1979, the year that the, that Star Trek the Motion Picture came out, which featured Nichelle kind of introducing the Air and Space Museum to uh, a young girl, and that's really terrific. And I, I mean, we we've, we've not sort of touched on this yet, but like she does it in this uh, in this commercial, but but what a singing voice! I mean, you know. Just such an incredible singing voice, such an incredible presence, and uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend. It. If you if you haven't seen the commercial, it's worth checking out. At least to the 1979 kind of look at the inside of the Air and Space Museum and the production values alone, it's really terrific. But Michelle, you know, does Aww. an excellent job as always.
1: I watched that. I I teared up. Alex, I, I cheered up. I had never seen that before. I think that was first released this week, the first time ever, right?
0: Yeah, I, I that's that was the thing. I, I you know, was it something they they made it never released? Was it released and people have just completely forgotten about it? But yeah, I'd never seen it before.
1: I have never seen that before. That was completely new to me, and it was just it was a treasure. And I showed it to my wife. She cried too. It was just uh, that that really, really, really really hit us really hard. And I mean, I I remember actually, you know, getting the news on Sunday actually when she first passed away. I didn't believe it. Yeah. I haven't been on Facebook for some time. So I didn't see Kyle's announcement. Mm -hmm. So when I saw one of the websites post it and I'm thinking, this is a Star Trek website. They're going to make sure they have this confirmed before they just put something out. And I said, this can't be true. And you know, it was hours before it hit all of the you know, the mainstream publications, but uh, all of the Star Trek community on Twitter was already treating it. We were already in mourning prior to the rest of the nation that maybe was aware of Star Trek or had a respect for Star Trek, grew up watching her on Star Trek. It was kind of, and it was kind of butting up against, you know, Bill Russell, who had passed away, you know, who was also a significant contribution to the civil rights movement, just in the manner that Nichelle was, you know, so there was just a lot going on. But I remember just not wanting to believe this was true, but then feeling in the back of my mind with all the news that I had read about her over the years, and then having it bring to the forefront my own uh, struggles with that, you know, it just... It's like, oh my gosh, it's probably true, you know, and I just didn't want to believe it. And I kept combing the internet looking everywhere. And I stumbled across some other treasures of hers, like her, you know, her museum of uh, television interview, which was just, uh, she was so sterling in in that. Uh, It's just been a, a really rough week with that news
0: well sadly Nichelle Nichols is not the only luminary from the Star Trek franchise who passed away recently David Warner who played St. John Talbot in Star Trek 5 The Final Frontier Chancellor Gorkon in Star Trek 6 The Undiscovered Country and Gull Madrid in Star Trek The Next Generation two-parter Chain of Command passed away at age 80 in London two weeks ago while Paul Sorvino who played Wolf's brother Nikolai in the Star Trek The Next Generation episode Homeward passed away at the age of 83 at his home in Florida Brian, any thoughts or memories you wish to offer about the passing of David Warner or Paul Silvino? David
1: Warner, man, that guy is electric in everything he's ever done. And I think really, really the first time I actually saw him in Star Trek was, of course, the undiscovered. It was for me, it was the undiscovered country because I I didn't. It took me years to watch Star Trek five, not just because it came out when I was really young. Cause I, I was already watching next gen at that yeah. point. Really, 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 really little, but I didn't watch Star Trek five. That was just not, I don't know why, but I just didn't run to that. So my first experience with him was as Chancellor Gorkon. But as far as like my first experience with him at all was in the Omen. Oh, she sure, was. Yeah. Um, oh my God, man, that, and you know, just seeing the way that he died and then knowing that a crew member died of a decapitation in the Omen, uh, when uh, lead up to the film's release, I just yep. thought, "Oh, creepy, creepy." Anyway, <laughs> that's that's what I sometimes that's what I think of with David Warner, and then of course, you know, as his performance as Gol Madrid was just dreading. <laughs> I mean, uh, he he was a dreadful person, but then he still had the slightest spark of humanity uh, in his own weird Cardassian way, you know, uh, allowing his daughter to be exposed to to one of his torture subjects saying, oh, they don't love our their children the way that we do. Mm-hmm. It's just something so human yet so torturous about that and the sound of his voice. I don't think that anybody else, his voice above all, because, you know, the makeup is an, is an element of the allegory in the story, but his voice is what really... Really, really, really sold, you know, don't let it end this way, yeah, sure. uh-huh. you know, or, or, you know, it was just, he, he was just electric in everything he did. And we lost a real, real, real big talent with David Warner.
0: Yeah, I am a huge David Warner fan. He is another actor who's, like, elevated everything he's ever been in, even that first season episode of Babylon 5 that he was in, Grail, which is a dreadful episode, but he is so good in it and makes the episode at least possibly watchable rather than just completely, completely awful. But, I mean, his Star Trek appearances are the ones that obviously I have seen the most. I also love his his uh, role in Time After Time. He did a series of audio dramas for Big Finish in the Doctor Who universe, where he played uh, an alternate universe version of the Doctor. He was also excellent in those. But I mean, for me, it's as you say, Chancellor Gorkhan, Gold Madred, the two roles that I most sort of closely associate with David Warner. Gorkhan, incredible role. I mean, you know, he had some really great lines as part of that. As just say, don't let it end this way. Captain, you know, bunch of the yes. stuff in the dining room scene just. All so like so well done, so good, so regal. I mean, you know, he and I obviously share a heritage. And so when I was a little kid watching David Warner, I was like, you know, I think I'd, like if I grew up to kind of look a bit like David Warner and sound a bit like David Warner, I think I'm probably on a, I think I'm probably on a good track there. But the thing that impresses me most about David Warner is the Gold Madrid performance and not because it's an incredible performance, which it is, but because of the backstory behind his appearance in chain of command which is that he was not the original actor hired to play that role. There was another actor who was hired who dropped out very shortly before the episode was supposed to go before the cameras. And so they called up David Warner and they said, hey, no, it's really short notice, but we're down a guest star. We think you would be great for this role. Would you come in and would you do it? And David Warner said yes, because of course he's a very classy man and I'm sure he didn't mind getting paid for it and I'm sure could probably have quoted them a quite a high number because they were in a bit of a bind but he said you know given that it's like two days until production and there's so much dialogue here i don't think i have time to learn all of the lines for this role so they basically put the lines on cue cards right behind the camera and he said you know he was able to memorize some of it but most of that performance is him reading those lines off of cue cards which is just i mean it is so well done that like Yeah, that it's so well done. And to have that kind of inability to prepare in the way you normally would, but still pull off this, just this incredibly deep, profound, affecting performance as Gull Madrid going head to head against Sir Patrick Stewart, you know, no, you know, n- nothing to sniff at in the acting department, right? Like could easily leave most other actors in the dust, right? Going toe to toe with Sir Patrick Stewart over the course of pretty much a whole Episode is a real credit to David Warner's skills as an actor, and yeah, I mean, we've just been really blessed with with all of his performances in various different movies in the Star Trek franchise, and uh, yeah, very sad that he's passed. I I never got the opportunity to meet him. He was at a uh, at least one convention that I went to, but I was not able to make time to kind of get an autograph or a picture with him, and 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 I'll regret that now because you know, obviously, I won't I won't have that chance again. But yeah, I mean, we we have as with Michelle, uh, we you know we we have the work, we have the legacy that we can continue to revisit and enjoy for for many many years to come.
1: Yes, and and you know, it, thank you for sharing that story. I actually never knew that he read. I do know that he was hired at the last minute. I don't remember the name of the actor who was who uh, was supposed to do it before him, but I had no idea that he read that off of cue cards. Yeah. And Crazy, I would right? never, uh, that is just totally, and as somebody who's done a little bit of, a l- very little bit of stage acting myself, I just, the preparation is key. And the fact that he was able to do that just makes me appreciate that performance all the more. I had no clue that he was reading Q. I would never have known that. But thank you for sharing that with me. That is something I did not know.
0: Well, a new interview in Variety with Star Trek Strange New Worlds production designer Jonathan Lee is shedding light on the approach that the Strange New Worlds production crew took to updating and redesigning the Enterprise for the show's recently concluded first season. We were all of the mind that the Enterprise is the star of the show," Lee explains. It's a major player. It's an actor, really. It's not a weapon of war. It's one when it has to be, but that's not its function. It's a scientific research vessel. It's also a sanctuary. We discussed the Enterprise in that very creative way before we got into the detail of how we were going to deal with the individual elements of it. About the bridge, Lee explained that, quote, "...we've taken the set that we've inherited from Discovery Season 2, but we did a great deal of work to it. Executive producer Akiva Goldsman briefed me to bring it back to the original series, we had to move things around a little bit. We moved the captain's chair around so that Captain Pike could throw a look to Helm Navigation really easily, and that would work with the camera. And since the view screen that was seen in Discovery was depicted using visual effects, a physical representation of the view screen was designed and added to the bridge set for Strange New Worlds. Lee also explained some of the design choices that went into creating the sickbay set in Strange Worlds, explaining that the choice to place the bio beds in the center of the room rather than against the wall, like on the original set was to ease movement of the camera all the way around the bed and make many more different kinds of shots possible. Lee also talks in the interview about the challenges with designing engineering and using the show's AR wall to supplement the standing set, and also teased the addition of new Enterprise sets for Season 2, including the port galley, which is this new bar that was kind of talked about in the last ready room of the season, a science lab, the nacelle room, which is very cool because we've only seen that before on the Enterprise D, and the shuttle bay. Brian, were you a fan of the Enterprise exterior and interior designs? from Star Trek you Worlds?
1: I really have to say that I was really afraid of what this, this was going to look like because I, I love Discovery. But some of the creative licenses that were taken with respect to the aesthetic and it being in the original series era, yeah. it had me nervous. It had mm-hmm. me nervous for Strange New Worlds. I think that Strange New Worlds has struck a beautiful balance of that 1960s mid-century modern look with, you know, the current vision of the future. Because the vision of the future is always is always changing from one decade one generation to the next. So that's why science fiction of all material ends up sometimes looking the most dated. And so I really, I have to be honest with you, I really hoped that they had gone a little bit more retro to be closer to the aesthetic of the original series and being that this is a prequel. Prequels are very hard. As a writer, I would probably stay away from them because, you know, that's, you're dealing with canonical issues that are more than just visual, uh, more than just the aesthetic. But I think that uh, Jonathan Lee had a very hard job on his hands. I think he built a beautiful, beautiful interior for the enterprise that I just, I'm in love with it, even though... I'm deeply at conflict with the fact that this is not the enterprise I grew up watching uh, that the Jim Kirk was in command of, but it is really beautiful. He t- he's done a phenomenal job.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the that that sort of word you use, balance, right, is is the one that I think best reflects my opinions of the Strange World sets. It's a really nice balance between the original series aesthetic and you know making it look modern and futuristic to today's sort of audience. I really like the changes that they made to the Enterprise bridge set between Discovery and Strange New Worlds, right? In, D- in Discovery season two finale, they, ha- they had added that back corridor that ran along the back of the bridge that's been removed for Strange New Worlds. Obviously, there's nothing like that in the original series. As Jonathan kind of talked about in the interview, they moved the captain's chair a little bit so that it was more sort of along those classic lines of right behind and navigation in- in the way that it was in TOS. The the color palette has been more updated to be in Discovery. It's more in the sort of Discovery like blues and grays kind of you know part of the color spectrum. Now in Strange Worlds, we're more in that kind of warm, sort of orangey, you know, the the gel buttons and the red uh railing around the edge of the bridge on on the original TOS Enterprise. And so yeah, they've just done this really nice job of kind of threading everything together. And yes, the quarters are much bigger than they are. Are in the original series But they're also super interesting And provide a lot of opportunity For the crew's personalities To shine through Yeah, I, I mean I I think at one point I had said When the one of the first trailers For Stranger Worlds came out I was actually a little disappointed About one of the pieces Of the Enterprise set Which was the corridors I was like I wish the corridors Looked a little bit more Like the TOS corridors I still feel that way a little bit But it never There was never a moment During the first season Where I was like oh, I really wish this corridor Looked like a TOS corridor And so if it didn't bother me in the show itself, then it's really not a big deal for me to be complaining about. And I'm very excited for some of these season two sets. I really want to see the Nacelle Room because as I say,
1: oh, my God. Oh, I'm so excited about that.
0: Yeah. Aside from Eye of the Beholder in TNG, you know, that's the only time we've seen it. So I'd love to see what 23rd century inside of a warp nacelle looks like.
1: You know, I love the little, I love the warp core in engineering. That was a very nice touch because I just look at that and that just, that screams something that would have been in 1964. You know, it just looked very 1964 to me. I love the warp core in engineering. I love that on all of the desks, I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's the uh, little flips and switches and the light-up intercom. Uh I, I love those touches. I'm always watching these episodes multiple times to pick up the background elements. I mean, there's so many little thoughtful details and winks to the original series. It is strange. I thought seeing the preview, seeing the trailer, the teaser, I was bothered by exactly the same thing you were at. Alex and I thought thought it would bother me in the show, but it strangely did not. Even yeah. though you know, when I hear the communicator, I'm like, no, why is the uh, why is that that's not the communicator hail sound? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm you know that's yellow alert. Some uh, that's yellow alert combined with uh, TNG yellow alert combined with the original series uh, pop open right? But, uh, you know, there's these little things and I pick up on them and I try to rationalize them. The fan in me is trying to rationalize the, canonically speaking, this was not a sound we heard in Starfleet yet, you know, all these things. But you know what? It doesn't, in the actual thick of the show and watching it, the aesthetic doesn't bother me because it seems like the story, the stories are really what is hearkening back to that era that, Many of us who have been fans, you know, pre J.J. Abrams, because I think a lot of this is influenced by, you know, just in the way Next Gen was influenced by the Trek movies of the 80s. These series are inspired by the J.J. Abrams films. And I think, and I'm grateful to those films in that they brought a new legion of fans to Star Trek and gave it viability in this era where allegory is not such a a big hot thing anymore. So I love those. I love those sets. So I digress. I can, I can run down the rabbit hole, Alex, but the sets are gorgeous. It doesn't matter that much in the thick of it. It's just give me a good story and have it be reasonably reasonable enough that I can believe that this was actually uh, a design for a constitution class ship and i am looking forward to seeing that engine nacelle room i hope it doesn't look more advanced than the nacelle room we saw on TNG. tngi the beholder um it should not because this was the 23rd century not the 24th century so if they are listening jonathan lee you know (laughs) Please, come on, let's let's not have it. I can't have it look more advanced than the D.
0: Well, and lastly this week, in the inaugural episode of a new video podcast series entitled To Boldly Ask, which is hosted by veteran Star Trek interviewer and commentator Ian Spelling, Star Trek The Next Generation star turned perennial Star Trek director Jonathan Frakes expressed an interest in coming aboard the next Star Trek show, not as one of its directors, but as one of its producers. I would like to be involved in the birth of one of these shows. That's a very attractive job, he said. Said in the interview. It's a writer's medium. And in the last five or ten years, there's always a writer with you on set. So when you get along with that writer, you can collaborate with that writer and the actors who always have questions about a scene or about the story or about an arc. The writer can take that, he or she can help you, or they can bail you out, or they can explain what's going, what they know from the writer's room about what's coming down the line, which helps actors understand why they're doing this now. So I'd be thrilled in being part of the birth of one of these series. That would be a thrill. Brian, do you think Jonathan should get his shot at the captain's chair behind the camera.
1: Yes, he has demonstrated himself time and time and time again over the last 30 plus years, 32 years, I believe, of directing episodes. I mean, that first one in TNG, The Offspring, that launched just a directorial career in and out of Star Trek that just shouldn't be ignored anymore. And I think that sometimes what happens when you're a big star of Star Trek or a big star of something of a sci-fi franchise or a showrunner, writer of a popular science fiction series in or out of a franchise, you know, you get pigeonholed. And I think that I personally think that if he's not actually a showrunner or a, uh, somebody who's there every week, I think he should his opinion should be significant. As somebody who worked closely with Gene Roddenberry and really i mean he's one of the finest representations and i think one of the best ambassadors for the what we can refer to as the i what i like to refer to as the original golden age of star trek when you had next gen ending a movie coming out a new series coming out and there was just it wasn't as much star trek as there is now but it felt like it was more present in the public at large discussion, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I love Jonathan Frakes I mean I'm a huge everybody who listens to the show knows Riker's one of my favorite characters Frakes is one of my favorite kind of Star Trek personalities I love the way that he kind of has this real interest in being involved in the franchise and continuing to be kind of committed to it I mean obviously you know if he was a producer on one of the shows he would probably get paid more than he does as a director so we'll acknowledge there's almost certainly a Financial interests In some of the desire To take on a a larger role With one of the shows But I also think that like I mean when you look at Frakes' record as a director Within the sort of Current era of Star Trek His episodes are normally normally the best episodes of the season.
1: And they are the most Star Trek yep. episodes. Right. Of, uh, like his of Discovery, they have been the most Star Trek episodes. And I would go as far as even saying some of the ones that, because I while I don't condone what Shatner said about how Roddenberry would feel, I do feel that Roddenberry would have issues with Discovery, big time major issues with Discovery. But I do feel that Jonathan Frakes's episode Within Discovery, would be the ones that he would approve of. Not only are they the best, but they are the most inherently Star Trek at their core.
0: And obviously, some of that's luck of the draw, right? He's not a writer, so he didn't write New Eden. He didn't write some of those other episodes that, you know, he is responsible for having directed and lots of people love. But there is a really important role for the director in crafting and creating those episodes in terms of setting the tone for it, working with the visual effects people to get the visual effects right, working with the editors to get the edit for the episode right which so often kind of plays into how well you know there are great scripts that if they're edited really badly are bad episodes and there are bad scripts that if they're edited really well are great episodes so you know like Frakes has had this really important role in the franchise the one thing though that if he does take on a producer role he's going to have to get a lot better at than he does right now is not constantly telling spoilers about you know what he's working on and what's coming up on the shows because he is absolutely notorious of that he spoiled at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention he spoiled the Mirror Universe coming up in season one of Star Trek Discovery Uh, he's done a couple of other things like that most recently in the Star Trek Lower Decks season two Blu-ray set he participated in one of the commentaries on uh, Kayshawn His Eyes Open uh, with Mike McMahon and Jack Wade, and they had to bleep out like a 30 second section of the commentary because he said something about the USS Titan which was clearly a spoiler for presumably season three of Star Trek Picard so like he just cannot Help himself, just like saying whatever comes into his mind about the things that he's worked on. And if he does want to kind of become a producer, that's definitely something he's got to continue. Uh-huh. <laughs> to do his he's, best not to do.
1: He's just got this excitable energy, you know, yeah. I and mean, it's contagious. And it, it goes back to what I said. I think he is no doubt he is the best ambassador for the Rick Berman era of Star Trek. I, I think out of everybody, he has shown the most excitement for continuing to be, or his most excitement and most desire for wanting to continue to be involved. And he's also very protective
0: of it as
1: well, which I
0: appreciate. All right, we've talked about the facts, and now let's speculate on what's gonna happen in the future of Star Trek. You make some very good points, Captain, but it's still all speculation and theory. So each week, my guest and I give you a wish or theory we're nurturing about any of the shows or the future of the franchise. So Brian, let's hear your theory or wish for this week.
1: I was listening to uh, one of my future peers and and one of your current peers, you know, in the Inglourious Trexverts, And uh, I was listening to the interview with the Star Trek Picard showrunner. You know, Terry Metalis, him talking about the fact that he wants to stay within the 24th now 25th century yep. the what what we kind of consider the current era of Star Trek present day era him wanting to stay within that and then Jonathan Franks expressing interest this fuels one of my biggest theories which i think season 3 of Star Trek Picard not only has the potential to be kind of a borgified version of Star Trek 6 and yep. send off because you know they're now making peace with the borg so you know, I feel like there could be this little Star Trek Six overarching tone in being that this is going to be the next gen's crew send off. But I also think that this season is going to kind of be like a potential Assignment Earth in that. This is going to introduce the quote-unquote next generation of Star Trek. Just like Terry Metalis said, he confirmed a suspicion I had. Because I listened to that episode, I just started listening to Trexpert, so I listened to that episode a lot more recently than it actually came out. And that in conjunction with all this other news, I'm thinking that we are going to have at least one more series in the Star Trek universe that is in the present day. And I think that it's going to be anchored by some of those next generation cast members coming back in season three of Picard.
0: Yeah, I, that sounds right to me, right? Like, you know, the way he was talking about it, said, talking about, you know, legacy actors and characters and how they're going to get to more legacy characters in season three of Picard than just the ones we know about. But obviously there were then, you know, he said, I think he'd gone out and counted, right? Like how many main characters or kind of major characters were there on the Berman era Star Trek shows? And it's something like 50. And he's like, well, obviously we don't get to all of those in season three of Star Trek Picard, but I'd like to go and visit some more of them. Like Miles O'Brien, who's not in season three of Picard, you know, what's Miles O'Brien up to? And, and yeah, I mean, I think there could be something really interesting about the way he was sort of talking about season three of Picard as doing some of that, like bridging between generations that maybe there is a bit of a off-pilot embedded within season three of Picard for a successor show that obviously wouldn't feature or star Sir Patrick Stewart and would have a different name and would be a different show, but would be sort of a continuation of something from Star Trek Picard. Do you have a sense of what you think that's going to be? I mean, I know lots of people would be interested in like a seven of nine kind of star vehicle as that sort of successor series. Do you have any sense of what you might want to see?
1: You know, I have a sense of what I want to see, and then I have a sense of where I think CBS slash Paramount Plus is wants to take things. Because okay. where do you yeah, want to go? Where Where I want to go, I would like us to go back to Deep Space Nine. Yeah, we need to see what's going on with those characters. Miles O'Brien is just one element of that. And the, yep. the twenty thousand dollar question is, you know, will Avery Brooks get back on camera again? You know, and that's going to be a big thing. She can't really have. I mean, you it's already a challenge without Renee Auberzonois, yeah, without Odo, sure. one of my favorite characters, and one of my favorite interviews, too, by the way, that I, I've ever done in my writing career. You know, not just in Star Trek, but period. Without his presence, without Avery's, that's kind of hard. But that's where I'd like us to go. I want to know what's going on with Miles O'Brien. I want to know what's going on with Kira. I want to know what's going on with Bajor you know, because we're so many years removed now from the Cardassian occupation. And uh, what's going on on that side of space? I want to know. Now, CBS, however, they could go the DS9 route, right? I think that the corporate, everything right now is existing IP. And so while there'll be new shows with new characters or newer characters some that anchor back to our legacy characters there's going to be something that's high profile like picard because picard if you think about it was kind of a kind of a public beckoning because next generation the most popular star trek franchise of all if people see that on billboards or, or if you see it at the bart station like i saw it at the bart station in san francisco when it was first coming out a couple years ago pre covid you know that's a big, that's a BFD. Yeah, that's, that's a big deal. And that's going to draw people to Paramount Plus, it's going to draw people who maybe were exclusive next gen fans, it's going to draw those subscribers, it's going to draw them to other Trek shows. So I think there is going to be something that is high profile that harkens back to the Berman golden era of Star Trek, and I would love it to be DS9. I don't know that that's where they'll go, because Prodigy seems to be going Voyager Right? Yep. The card went next gen. It's seven of a seven of nine series for me, even though I love Voyager and I love that character. For me, sure, she could be an important anchor of it, but to have it be her vehicle, there's gotta be some other legacy and/or new characters there to help bolster that. I don't know if Seven and Rafi can carry a series, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. I know that Hollywood. I know that uh, Hollywood and I know that the corporate mentality says this is today because it is very represent representative, which I have no problem with by the way, but, but it, but I don't know if it's just enough to carry a series.
0: Well, let me tell you my wish this week, which is, so we've obviously got Star Trek Lower Decks coming back on August the 25th. Uh, You know, sounds like there's going to be deep space nine episodes. So I'm excited to kind of revisit the station for an episode of Lower Decks. But for the last two seasons, Tip mouse animation has done a T-shirt club for Lower Decks In which for every episode they've done a new T-shirt with a new kind of design On it and I'm really Keeping my fingers very firmly crossed they continue Doing that for season 3 of Lower Decks Because those t-shirts are great You can sign up for all 10 of them and then you get an extra 11th or you Can just buy them a la carte each week They're only available for one week after each episode Comes out but I have Probably 6 or 7 of them And I wear them constantly They're probably the ones that I wear the most I'm actually shocking. I should have put one on today so that I could then be like, and I'm wearing one right now, which I'm I'm actually not. I'm wearing a Deep Space Nine t-shirt at the moment. But I love those Lower Decks t-shirts. They're really high quality. The designs are great. They're, they're, you know, they're not sort of your like traditional sort of Star Trek t-shirt of just a, a logo on a black t-shirt type thing, right? They're really kind of interesting designs, which means they're also not for everybody, right? So like, I, you know, I pick and choose the ones I like. I think across both seasons, I probably got 10 out of the 20 that they've released. Oh, yeah. But it was really cool. I love them very much The Keyshawn his eyes open one Is my favourite Which is the pink t-shirt With the USS Titan on it And then like A mirror reflection Of Boimler's face Because that's the one Where he has the Transporter accident Like that's a great t-shirt Or the First First Contact T-shirt, which has Matt and Kimolu, the beluga whales from Station Ops on it, right? Like it's a, it's a aquamarine T-shirt, great T-shirt, right? Just really, really great. So, uh, they've not announced yet that that's coming back to season three, but I did notice that for the Beavis and Butthead series, which Tipmouse has also animated, they're doing a T-shirt club for that. And that just started. So I'm kind of hoping they're going to do the same for Starship Lower Decks season three. So that's my wish this week is for more Lower Decks T-shirts because I wear them a lot.
1: Oh, that sounds terrific. And I've snoozed on those T-shirts shirt i'm building my star trek t-shirt and sock collection courtesy of my lady you know she's really kind of help enable me to be this person who buys lots of trek swag so thank god there um (laughs) so i gotta i gotta look into those shirts they you you got me juiced about these
0: (laughs) oh yeah definitely definitely if they do do it check them out because there might be one or two that you like oh yeah absolutely do you have a theory or a wish for discovery picard strange world's lower decks or prodigy that you'd like to share tweet them to me at weekly trek or email them to me at weekly trek at the tricorder transmissions.com and i might feature your theory in a future episode. Well, that's all the time we've got for this episode of Weekly Trek. Thank you so much to my guest, Brian Kane, for joining me today. Brian, how can people contact you if they want to continue the conversation?
1: The best way to follow me is on I am. Brian Kane, that's B-R-Y-A-N-C-A-I-N. I am Brian Kane at Twitter, and that's where you'll be able to get updates on when On This Star Date will be debuting.
0: And what's on this star date gonna be about?
1: It's gonna kind of be, it's gonna be a an interview/slash roundtable discussion podcast on all things Star Trek, of course. But it's gonna be how Star Trek intersects with everyday life, oh, cool. technologically, socially, politically, and otherwise. And all of these, not only the great, all the great inventions that we, technological inventions that we use now that came from Star Trek, but those that physicists are working on for the future, like for instance, the tractor beam, the phaser beam, these are things that physicists have actually been able to achieve. And uh, we just want to talk about how, just like politics touches every area of our life, whether we want to admit it or not, I think that whether you're a Star Trek fan or not, every single element... Uh, some of our most crucial uh, elements of our everyday lives, these devices, the devices that we're talking on right now, they're all touched by Star Trek. And I just kind of want to accentuate that and ask really, really bold questions, like things that might get people's dander up. It, but, you know, there's no wrong answers, right? Everybody has an opinion. And I just want us to come together and, in a, in a obviously, in a civilized manner, discuss them. You know, is Star Trek too woke now is that a thing or has it not been woke in the past and it and it is now and what does woke mean for Star Trek the things that are going on today does Star Trek have a responsibility to mirror society today in discussions of
0: allegory. Well, that's really exciting, Brian. I mean, I'm looking forward to checking it out. Congratulations. I'm looking forward to the first episode.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it and I'd love to have you on one of those panels one time.
0: Oh, absolutely. You can find me anytime.
1: All right. All right. Thank you, Alex.
0: Of course. And you can find this show on Twitter at Weekly Trek and me at Alexander T. Perry. And if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast player of choice. And please check out some of the other great shows on the Tricorder Transmissions. And if you like our show, Please also consider becoming a Patreon of Tricorder, which you can find at patreon.com/slash-the-tricorder-transmissions. And lastly, if you're looking for Star Trek news on the internet, I hope you will turn to trekcore.com. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you to all of my listeners. And until next week, live long and prosper.